everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Game. I'm Christian Napier, and today we are joined by a very special guest, the person responsible for everything that we ate during games time, Don Fritchard. I'm doing great, Christian. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, uh, just uh, before we go any further, I want to give you a great shout out. I think what you're doing is fantastic. And I know you have a, a lot of personal time committed to this project and it's, it's really worth it. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to rekindle a lot of old relationships that were, that were fantastic during the games. Thank you. And so thank you for agreeing to take time out of your schedule to join us. And may I ask, where are you joining us? from? Uh, today I'm joining you from uh, my home in Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, so like many folks, I'm working out of the home office these days and uh, trying to do as much as we can by by phone, email and, uh, you know, conference calls or WebEx, just like the rest of the world. Well, it looks like you are joining us from home. Are you working remotely? Uh, yes, I am. Yes. Currently working on uh, a project in Georgia right now. And uh, so we're uh, we're going through a, a lot of the preparations for uh, this event and uh, how COVID-19 will actually affect that that operation. Well, that's uh, really, really interesting. I hope that project works out well in the midst of all of this COVID madness that we're enduring at the moment. Hopefully it will subside at some point, although right now everything is spiking, it looks like. How's the situation there in, in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia? Well, I think we're experiencing the same type of issues. Uh, we have good days. Restaurants will start to open. We uh, entered into phase three. Uh, just a day or two ago, and uh, and yet as I really look around, m many of my friends that have restaurants are still not open, and some of them have actually gone out of business during this, and so it's a it, it's really a tough time, especially for for those in the food service and hospitality industry. It certainly is. I was hearing something this morning. I was listening to the news, and I think they were saying that something like. 100,000 small businesses have already closed their doors permanently due to COVID. And um, it's a tremendous amount of suffering. And I hope that uh, we'll be able to find our way through all of this uh, when, uh, when we uh, come out of it, whenever that might be. I, I agree. So it's a tough time for everybody right now. Yeah, it is. Well, everybody's spending a lot of time focusing on these tough times and rightly so, but one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to take a bit of a break from those tough times and remember some, uh, I don't know, some really enjoyable times. And for many of us, it was some of the greatest moments of our careers and our lives happened around 20 years ago. The Salt Lake 2002 games is what we're referencing. And uh, so let's go ahead and hop in our little time machine and go back 20 years or so. Don, what were you doing before you joined the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, and how did you find your way to Salt Lake? Well, uh, great story for, for me. And uh, again, I echo your comments about one of the greatest opportunities and experiences of a lifetime. It was certainly life-changing for me personally. And so 20-some uh, years ago, I was uh, really right, I, I guess, at, the, at, the, at a tipping point in my career. I was uh, overseeing food and beverage operations from a corporate office for about 40 hotels and some conference centers. Uh, so my, you know, my, my routine had everything to do with opening and restructuring restaurants to banquet facilities or 
putting on large events for, for these groups. Uh, uh, I, it was an interesting way. I think I found myself to, to, uh, to Salt Lake was, was actually approached by a recruiter or a headhunter, if you will. And um, I think that the, the organizing committee back in at Salt Lake at that time was looking for uh, some fresh uh, food service uh, perspective, if you will. And uh, they received my name from a mutual from a mutual friend that I had with uh, with uh, with a headhunter. And uh, actually, when he called me up, I, I thought it was a I thought he was joking me. I actually thought it was a friend of mine that was putting me on because he asked me if I would like to throw my name in the hat for the for the Olympic uh, food service director. Um, I actually made him and said it was okay, but I, I need to call you back. I wanted to verify his number, so. And I, I did, and then I started the process back in those days with I think Steve Clark uh, was my contact back uh, back in those days, and went through the process, and I, I actually couldn't couldn't believe it, and uh, you know it was such a, an interesting opportunity because it was a culmination of everything I had done to that time, and I was uh, selected and offered the offered the job to go to Salt Lake City. Don, give us a sense of the timing. When was it that you made that jump to the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? Uh, I jumped to the organizing committee in January of 1999. So I, I think I was the, right around the 75th, maybe 80th uh, employee there on staff. Um, that was a crazy time because, uh, this, you know, the scandal was just happening. It was literally just happening. When I, when I, when I flew to Salt Lake City, I, I remember getting on a plane uh, out of Virginia to, to, and, and had to go through Ohio. And uh, literally, when I sat down in the seat on the plane and opened up the USA Today, the headlines back then said, Scandal Rocks Salt Lake City. And I uh, truly didn't know what I was in for. But, uh, but I went to Salt Lake, uh, called the office. Uh, that back, back in those days, uh, a fellow by the name of Tom Nykum was the director of game services. He was tied up, uh, I guess, with the FBI and some other folks. His assistant told me to just go to the hotel and check in and, and, and hold tight, and they'll, they'll, they'll let me know what to do next. <laughs> that was a tough day. <laughs> but you uh you decided to do it anyway. That's a leap of faith, right? Yeah, it, it was a it was a leap of faith. It was uh I remember calling my dad and just telling him the story about what was going on. And he said, Well, you're you're there now. You might as well you might as well see what happens. And um I, I think that's how I approached it. I was I was so excited to be there. Uh, having this hang over our head was uh it was all outside of my realm because I really wasn't familiar with anything that happened. I didn't really know anybody there. So I was uh, true, truly from the outside. I had no, uh, nothing to compare it to. So um, sure enough, that Friday afternoon, uh, Ginny, uh, and I apologize, I can't remember Ginny's last name, but she called me up and said, Mr. Nykin said to come into the office and just uh, go through the lines around the FBI and the local media and stuff like that, come up and uh, he'll fill me in on what's going on. And I guess the rest of it kind of just worked itself out. I, I ended up there all the way through the finish line. Well, it did work itself out and uh, you did a great thing. And we have high compliments from many people uh, who have been on the podcast before. One, for the work that you did and two, for being the person that you are and and for having some amazing stories. So I'm really looking forward. No pressure, right? No pressure today. I'm really looking forward <laughs> to the stories you share. But I want to come back. You come to Salt Lake. Um, what do you think when you get here? Aside from the FBI and all that kind of stuff, but, uh, you know, the city as a, as a whole, the community, what were your first impressions? 
Well, it, it, it's really interesting. My, uh, the interview process for me started right before Thanksgiving uh, in 98. So I was, uh, uh, I was out there over the holidays and uh, for my interviews and so forth. And, and it was my it was my first trip to Salt Lake. So I really didn't know what to expect, you know, out west coming from the East Coast and living on the East Coast my entire life. But I was just completely taken with the with the beauty, if you will, of Salt Lake and, uh, you know, just the, that natural beauty first. But then the people, everyone I really encountered was was great. It didn't you know. And, and again, this was just in the interview process. So I'm talking about in restaurants or in the stores, in the office, when I went in, it was very inviting and uh, very, very, very friendly. So I, I had nothing but uh, the great things to say. It was one of the best places I've lived in my, in my life. I often get this question, why does it take so long to prepare a games? When it comes to food and beverage, you join in January of 1999. That's just over three years before games time. Right. Some people might ask, why do you need three years to plan food and beverage for an event that takes a couple of weeks? Well, uh, as a friend of mine used to say, it's uh, three or four years of planning and 17 days of improvisation. Uh, so I, I, I think the, the reason we needed so much time was, number one, to figure out uh, who's who. Uh, you would think that the common practice would be that you'd go from a game to another game and be able to replicate whatever processes or procedures that they had. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not really the case. And then I think it was further compounded for us because of the scandal. We, um, you know, I'm, I don't want to misquote any numbers, but I, I believe that back then, right when I started to understand what was going on, we were about $150 million in the hole. Uh, already. And, uh, you know, the games were, were having a hard time with sponsorships and so forth. So not only do we need to understand how to do it, what made sense in Salt Lake, but also we had some, you know, some some pretty, uh, pretty uh, substantial financial uh, uh, issues to overcome and, and, and figure out. So um, the planning of the planning of it really does take that long just to integrate everyone, figure out that you're delivering a food service program that's uh, that works for each of those constituent groups from, you know, highly competitive winter sport athletes, totally separate than the summer. I mean, uh, there's, they almost take in four or five times as many calories, if you will, than what the summer, some of the folks in the summer games do. So it was just a lot of that. It was really just taking the time to understand it. And, and there was no book, there was nothing for me to read other than a few reports that came from other games, but not many for Salt Lake. Right. I mean, that was before the IOC really implemented a transfer of knowledge program. And it wasn't until after the Sydney Games where the IOC started to formalize a transfer of knowledge program. I want to come back to the budget. You mentioned that there was a big deficit and all of the areas in the organizing committee were impacted by that deficit. How was the food and beverage area impacted and what were some of the creative ways that you found to save costs while at the same time delivering a quality service? Yeah, that was uh, that, that, that's probably one of the most uh, interesting things that has ever happened to me in my career. So you had the I, I had the transition of who, who basically hired me. Like I said, Nikem, we were still under Frank Jocklick at that time when I walked in the door. Um, and then they brought in, um, you know, Mitt Romney uh, entered the picture. 
And he, as a director, if you will, of food service, um, all of us were required to basically re-interview with Mitt and, and, and his team. Um, and he, he was very clear that things were going to be different. But for me, they were already different. So, it, you know, it was just, it was just more. Um, but uh, he had a very fresh approach to that. Uh, and his fresh approach right off the bat was to send me an email uh, basically removing my entire budget, which was $20 million. <laughs> I mean, I literally, I wish I could find, I, you know, we, we don't have access to what happened 20 years ago, but I, I, I know I printed it off and I've looked for that thing several times just to prove to people that that's how intense it was. And so they took a, a budget that was at $20 million to, for infrastructure and to do some different things. And, and he literally removed it all, all in one email and said, rebuild the budget from ground up. We're going to build the budget with what we can do, not what we had originally prescribed. Um, so that, that's, uh, that, was the, that was the first blow. Um, but the fun that came out of that, at Christian, and the, uh, the education for me was, uh, was awesome because literally I was able to sit down at that time with, with Mitt and Mark Lewis had joined the, had joined the team as the uh, vice president of marketing. And um, we were able to get very creative with food service and literally almost took the lemons and, uh, and turned them into lemonade. Um, we consolidated. Uh, the first thing we did was we consolidated all of the food service there. So that was, athletes uh that was the athletes village food service that was all the hospitality that was everything for the patrons or for the visitors it was everything for staff uh and volunteers contractors and we we created a giant valuation of this and um uh, i believe that i was at that time one of the first food food service guys in olympic history to date that was responsible for all of it and uh, they normally would break that up and have a different food service managers or directors Run some of these areas, but we took the entire program and then we we created a food service giant model, and we went into the marketplace and uh, started to solicit people to come and basically test the big boys and see if they were capable to actually provide the service uh, for us for that. And uh, uh, that was one of our first wins. You know, we we were able to secure a, a to secure a, a very large sponsorship with. Uh, with a company that was based here in, in Charlotte, but they were also headquartered in the UK. And um, uh, it, uh, and again, a lot of that was just, that was thanks to everybody. It was so, it was so unique that we basically built this, uh, this plan to put together. And uh, it, it, it turned out to be, if you will, the thing that saved the food service uh, operation for, for those games anyway. So really what you had is a combination of uh, VIK from sponsors and then some cash, I assume. Yes. Well, you know, again, you know, without divulging everything, I guess I still live in the old world, those NDAs. But the uh, basically what we did is we had a, 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 a very large, very well-known worldwide food service company that came that came in with us. All of the all of the traditional people that were doing Olympic Games stepped aside. They really couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't do what we were asking them to do. This company had never ventured into the Olympics before. And so they wanted to, they wanted to try that platform. We just happened to be the right people, uh, the right organization at the right time. Uh, they were able to use all of their different uh, sub companies, but 
the the importance of, of actually stating that is that a lot of other food companies realized that the big boys were in town and they wanted to become part of it. And so to answer your question specifically, yes, it opened the door for some incredible deals of VIK and cash with uh, companies like Certified Angus Beef or with Campbell's Soup and General Mills. And uh, it just went on and on where we we ended up becoming a profit center in food service rather than a, 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 a deficit or a liability. So what I want to ask is you decide to consolidate all of these into one big value proposition, but the requirements for food are quite different amongst those various stakeholders, right? So you, you have athletes that have um, a lot of different requirements depending on the nature of their, their uh, athletic uh, achievements, but also where they come from. So, you know, different parts of the world have different kinds of cuisines and different kinds of requirements. Then you've got other stakeholders like the media and the broadcasters, and you've got Olympic family and foods that are provided in lounges. You've got the workforce. So how are you able to accommodate all of these various kinds of requirements and deliver a high level service to everyone? Well, uh, that, that's a great question. And it, and it really did take a lot of planning, but we, we focused on, uh, and, and, and that was again, Mitten Fraser's mission was for, for us to focus on the athletes first. So uh, our goal was to deliver a very unique food service operation in the, in the athletes village. Um, so we, we had you know, multiple locations. I don't know if you, if you remember that, but we were up at the University of, of Utah, then we were out in the Soldier Hall, a couple of, of places. But um, one of the things that, that, we, that we were able to do is take uh, one of the companies that was owned by, by our, our large sponsor was based in New York, and they were doing business and industry accounts for international companies based in Manhattan. We literally brought them to to the village and kind of stripped it down. So in other words, we wanted to have that high end uh, feeling of service and really unique foods, which I know we achieved uh, because I had been to several athletes villages before we were delivering a very unique product. We were baking, making fresh, everything there from fresh pizzas to fresh breads and uh, just all different kinds of items. And, and, and then taking the products, if you will, from our certified Angus beef partner and, grilling steaks for the hockey team at the 10, 11 o'clock at night, you know? Um, but I, I think what it was, was understanding each one of the constituent groups. And then myself having a culinary background, I was able to intertwine all of the items from our, uh, from our partners and work those into every menu everywhere that we possibly could, um, and try to keep them interesting and unique over, a, over a 17 day period, just for the games. But also when we think of staff and, and volunteers, we had, um, for example, up in uh, Snow Basin, you know, we built little huts up there and put microwaves in those little huts. A lot of people don't know this. And then that's when Campbell Soup first invented the pop-off soup can. You know, you top, took the top off, put the plastic back on and put it in a microwave. We were one of the first first groups, if you will, to actually utilize that new uh, new new item from, from Campbell's. Um, but that's that's how we went about everything e- each area was was different and uh uh i think the coup de gras on all of that was that in addition to providing an olympic level of food service for each one of those constituent groups whether they were press or volunteers and, um but also we created uh the uh, a program that was dialed into the um, ray grant you know he was the director of arts and culture 
and we created a culinary program that we did for 17 nights that feature, featured the top chefs in the United States. And they came uh, with no charge to us other than, uh, you know, some accommodations and a few things. But we created 17 nights of James Beard experiences at a Bravenal Hall and then paired them with uh, performers like Savion Glover and Itzhak Perlman. I mean, it was spectacular. Uh, so, you know, we took food to a completely different level. Everything from, I call it the, the wahoos or the hot dogs that we, that we received in value and kind, all the way down to putting out some meals that would uh, just rival any white tablecloth restaurant in the country at, at that time. Well, you mentioned the wahoos and the hot dogs there. Us staff uh, certainly had our fill of hot dogs and wahoos. <laughs> How did that come about? Well, the uh, the interesting thing was with the hot dogs, we, we were working with certified Angus beef and not to get into their whole business model, but they're a great organization and they pride themselves on, you know, delivering a very high quality product, but they have byproduct. So everybody wants the center cut steak. Everybody wants the tenderloin. We figured out a way to use their byproduct and then partnered with a company out in Milwaukee. Uh, it was a it was a family owned. What a story. A family owned sausage business. They were around for like 125 years. And we we worked with them to create a 100 percent certified Angus beef hot dog, all beef, all natural. That's how that came about. It was a kind of a clever story for the certified Angus beef people. And it was great for us because we. We, we, we knew we were going to get these hot dogs. And so we put them in every location on roller grills as kind of, I'll call it the snack. You know, you could always, and I'm sure you probably had a couple uh, for, for that month, but uh, we, we, we had them everywhere. The Wahoos was a, a different story. And Mark Lewis is probably still kicking me for that one. But um, we had ordered, you know, enough. We, we, we were trying to tie the Wahoos in as a snack for our staff and our volunteers. So we needed like, over the period of time, you know, we were feeding 25 to 30,000 staff volunteers a day. So we needed about 280,000 of these units of these Wahoos to go for the whole period, you know, let's just say the 30 days. Well, the, the fellow who actually keyed the order in that went back to General Mills, somehow or other got his zeros mixed up and he actually keyed in 2.8 million <laughs> packages of Wahoos which equated to almost 28 tractor trailers <laughs> of these things. <laughs> and uh, once they made them, they, they weren't going to take them back. So they just basically send them all to us and we put them in a warehouse out there and outside of Sandy. And uh, we used as many as we could. We gave them away forever. And, uh, and then they were, I think they were removed from the market shortly thereafter because quite frankly, they weren't very good. Yeah. I have to say, I actually kind of liked them. And um if you remember post games, there was that big, uh, oh, that all that dissolution, right? Where they were selling off chairs and tables and desks yeah. and all kinds of things. And yeah, there were boxes and boxes of those Wahoos. I actually picked up a couple of boxes of the Wahoos, uh, which we ate for a few months afterwards. So <laughs> it was a, it was a fun little snack to give for small children who didn't know any better. There you go. So a great legacy of the games for me, but uh, let's come back to food and beverage. We've, we talk about the food, but in order for you to deliver all that food, you need infrastructure. You alluded to that a little bit earlier, right? But that food ha you know, has to be prepared. You got to set up kitchens, you need power, you need a lot of equipment. Right. And, and sometimes in interesting places because a winter games has a lot of outdoor events in cold weather. 
any particular challenges or stories related to having to operate all of this equipment that is temporarily set up, uh, sometimes in adverse conditions? Christian, that year, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that was a that was a, that was a totally unique story unto itself. Um, we used a company uh, that came in and actually laid out each at each of the venues. As you mentioned, each one was different. So we had, you know, greater needs in the remote areas because of the population of who we might be feeding there. So we actually created these centralized kitchens and then some small satellite kitchens to, to kind of uh, finish the product off. So say, for example, if we were at Soldier Hollow, we would have one large kitchen area that may be producing food for hospitality or for this, because we were able to use one caterer or one, one food service provider. So in that partnership, we had a central kitchen and then we created these little satellites. But this is something that we, that we did that again, was never done before. I actually built the kitchens in conjunction with uh, the, the, the caterer that we were using but even more interesting is, is that we went into the marketplace and talked to some other companies to buy the equipment back the day that we were finished with it. So if you think of those millions of dollars we spent on equipment that were part of that overhead, we actually made a deal to sell all the equipment the same day we bought the equipment. Uh, one of our big purchasers, believe it or not, was Wolfgang Puck out in Los Angeles. He ended up buying some of our big hospitality kitchens. Uh, so we, we literally took it in as a as a debit, and then we were actually actually able to turn it around at a pretty substantial profit uh, to sell all that equipment out at the end. But the logistics of that was uh, uh, was really quite enormous. But but I'll but I'll tell you along those lines as well that there was a great story that came out of that. That um, Beth White uh, uh, over at this uh, she was at the you know at the Salt Palace. And they had a caterer over at the Salt Palace that he was one of the few local folks that we actually use. We incorporated him into our food service team. He did a great job. And uh, but we went to them because they needed to build out a cafeteria for the for the press and the media that was kind of located in the central area. And uh, so we, we put that in our budget. He, nobody had it in their budget. So Beth didn't have it. The Salt Palace didn't have it. This this caterer over there certainly didn't have it. So. We were able to put that equipment into our budget, and we had all of the pros, if you will, put it together, and we went in and set it up. And then um, I would say unbeknownst to really anyone, uh, post-games, rather than selling that equipment off, we had this developed this very interesting relationship with the Salvation Army in Salt Lake. And again, a lot of people may not even know that or remember that, but they helped us in a variety of ways for from some storage areas. Uh, they let us use a couple of their small warehouses. They also provided our hydration plan out on the menus. Uh, I'm sorry, out on the mountain venues. If you, you might remember seeing Salvation Army trucks and they were handing out water to the patrons, that was part of the mass gathering act that we had to deal with. But um, at the end of the at the end of the games, I was I was talking with Mitt and Fraser about that situation and that I happened to be down at their uh, their office area their where they were providing food to homeless and other folks there in Salt Lake. And uh, they decided to donate all of that equipment. So we literally rebuilt the entire Salvation Army food service plan in downtown Salt Lake. And the nice thing about it is until now, I don't think it's really ever been mentioned, you know. So the, the equipment had some interesting stories. And, uh, and, and then there was a nice, really nice legacy piece that went with that as well.
That's a fantastic unheralded legacy story there, Don. And I really appreciate you sharing that because there was so much good done in this community that came out of those games. When we yes. talk about legacy of the games for you, Don, um, what was your own personal legacy? You did a lot of innovation there. You know, what were some of the things that you learned that helped you both personally and professionally uh, throughout the the 18 years since the games concluded? Well, Christian, that, again, that's a, that, that is a great question. Like, as I said, when we were first starting, it was, uh, the, you know, those games for me were personally and professionally life-changing. I was a, I'm with, you know, I'm, I'm, I was a typical food and beverage soldier. I'll say, you know, I, I started my career as a, as, you know, to learn to be a chef. I, so I worked through that whole process and then I, you know, went on, I kept, I was working for other companies the entire time, if you will, you know, and, uh, uh, always working, trying to get a bigger or better, but not necessarily thinking about it outside the box like we had to do at Salt Lake. So the number one thing that happened there for me was working with people uh, uh, and everybody. I mean, I you know, if I started naming names, that we, we'd be here you know forever. But just suffice it to say is not only the leadership, but also the other individuals that I work for, they, I work with and for. They, they were great. They were always just their presence made you better. They made you, you know, think differently or, or, or whatnot. So um, uh, it, it actually put me where I'm at t today, uh, very early on uh, in the games, like my third week there, it wasn't bad enough that we had all of the scandal and all the other stuff, but I was up in that little short building that was next to the American stores in the early days. And about, I, I used to go in, you know, six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. And uh, one morning I went in and there was a, a, a lady there and two gentlemen. They were all dressed in suits. I was the only one walked in and they asked if I was Don Pritchard. I said, yes. And they said, we'd like to talk to you. And out came three Secret Service badges. And uh, they said, we'd like to just talk with you for a few minutes. And I'm like, I don't know anything about this scandal stuff. I don't, <laughs> but that's not what they wanted to talk about. What they, what they wanted to talk about was the games and how we were going to build a food service security plan. And they led off by saying that over 50% of their security breaches in Atlanta came through food and beverage, and that they decided that they wanted to get in early and make sure that they could review these plans. So the, the reason I'm sharing that story is because we wrote a food security plan. And, and we put in not only food safety, because food safety and food security, obviously two different things, but um, then we had 9-11. And, and when 9-11 occurred, basically the food security plan that we put in place passed muster with the Secret Service. Um, the significance of that is that uh, post games, I went on to do, do some work for the State Department. I did a presidential inaugural, I did a G8 summit, and it was simply because we were able to write those plans, which is just unbelievable. Um, so that's how that impacted me. So from a professional standpoint, the lessons that I learned there and the ability to move large volumes of food in a very unique fashion is, is actually, that's, that's, that's how I'm here. So we went, we, you know, I've built several plans for other several Olympic committees and also, uh, uh, these liquidation plants and a few other things for some of the continued Olympic sponsors like NBC uh, today, you know, we, we put that plan together for them to show them how to go in and build their stuff, whether they were in China or Russia or uh, Canada, didn't matter. And uh, they, I believe that they still use that model today. Well, that's a really interesting and wonderful legacy. Thank you so much for sharing that. 
We typically end our podcast with three questions, but before we get to the three questions at the end, I have a specific question when it comes to food and beverage. Sure. As you survey the menu, whether it's on the athlete side, the media side, the spectator side, the workforce side, what was your favorite menu item? What did you like to eat the most out of everything that you had on the menu there in Salt Lake? Well, uh, <laughs> that's... <laughs> You, Aside you, from hot dogs and wahoos, yeah, no, you, 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 you've, you've been studying on me there, be, you know. And by the way, I should thank you for the testament. You know, we started to, to go down this path one time before, so it's given me the opportunity to think about some of this as well in greater detail. But you know, interestingly enough, I think uh, the, the the item that I enjoyed the most was the Wild West chili, and um, the the Wild West chili was also made with certified Angus beef, but the fun thing about it is, is that we we took that Wild West chili to Sydney for the games down there when we were doing the Salt Lake hospitality, as well as some of the hot dogs. And then the USOC contacted us and asked if we could send in, I don't know what it was, I think it was 10,000 pounds of these hot dogs and send them into the Athletes Village in Sydney for the, US, like the USA wanted the other teams to experience that. So it was like a little little fun thing that we did. But I would say it was a Wild West chili was my favorite item on the menus. All right. Wild West chili, a worthy choice. Thank you very much, Don. Uh, Before we get to those final questions, any other stories that you had on your list that you wanted to share that we haven't covered already? Oh, Christian, you know, I tell you, I I consider and talk to you all day about it, but I think that again, the, the appreciation goes to you for just these wonderful trips down memory lane. I've, I've listened to many of the podcasts that you've been doing. I love to hear from those folks. I haven't seen s- some of them, but you know, I, I connected with Darren Hughes in March, right before the, the you know the outbreak, and we always try to take a few minutes to catch up. But I but I happen to have lunch with them uh, uh, right before COVID started and everything got shut down. But the, the the people to me were the greatest thing about the event, and and just working with everybody that was so focused on delivering this incredible event at such an unusual time in our history and whatnot. And uh, it'd be interesting if there was something like that that was happening right now in the middle of this COVID thing that would really pull people together the way that the Olympics did for 9-11 after 9-11. So um, uh, I, I could go on. There's just, again, I, if I started naming names, people would be upset with me because of who I forgot. So I want to just thank everybody for, for the great friendship and the wonderful opportunity to work with each and every one of them. Well, thank you, Don. And I agree with you totally. For me, the highlight of those games were the people that we worked with. And I enjoy having relationships with many of them to this day. So thank you for highlighting that. And on that note, we will segue into our final segment. Okay. Uh, Our assignments, song, food, and a favorite memory. Let's go with the song first. You know, it's funny because I, 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 you know, again, when we were going back through this and it started, I think when we were down in Sydney, it was because of these American chefs that I took down there and it just, the one pub that we were going to uh, probably a little bit more frequently than we should have on occasion, but it was uh, the, the song was tub thumping by Chumbawamba. <laughs> and uh, the, the line in the song, just about continually getting knocked down and getting back up again was kind of our theme song. You know, we were all working around the clock and doing this and doing that. So it just became kind of one of those things for me. Every time I hear the song, I go back and I start thinking about, Salt Lake, Sydney, and then the Olympics, and just what a wonderful experience it was for me. So really, really, not that it's a great song, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> so, 
Well, I think the theme of that song or the message of that song is quite appropriate, right? Like you just said, delivering a games is it requires overcoming a series of impossible obstacles and meeting any number of impossible deadlines. <laughs> and so you just keep getting knocked down, but you just have to get back up again because you can't call up the IOC and say, hey, can you postpone the games for a year because we're not ready? That, that's exactly right. Yeah, we, we, we had no choice. And once we made the commitment, we were going. We were going to do this. Okay, let's come back to the food topic. Particular restaurant you like to frequent when you work there in Salt Lake? Well, I had uh, two favorites, and uh, both of them were on extremes. And uh, you know, my my favorite burger still was the Crown Burger uh, there. So I would say from a from a from a just a wonderful kind of a fun food experience that I've replicated or try to replicate, I should say, a few times since. But um, I also really enjoyed the Bombaro restaurant that used to be at the Hotel Monaco across from the American Source right there. That was. Uh, uh, just two totally different types of operations. And I, and I enjoy them both with equal enthusiasm. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Both wonderful choices. I'm a huge Cranberger fan, so I really appreciate <laughs> that. I love the bacon oh, cheeseburger there. Cranberger. All right. Final question for you. As you look back at all of the great memories that you have from Salt Lake, is there one that really stands out as a goosebump memory? It could have been something that happened during games time, but it could have been something that was uh, before the games. I I think well, there, there again, uh, Christian. There's there's like so many stories, or so many. That, that that's the whole thing is that each each one of them by themselves was was fun and unique at the time, and some were happened there in Salt Lake. Some again, you know, happened in Sydney. Some have happened since the. But but I thought about that a little bit. Uh, more and and I I recall the opening ceremonies, and and I, I I guess when you talk about that goosebump, we we were there. We were up in the suites when uh, President Bush came through with 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 uh, Mitt Romney and and others, and the mostly I would say that the American public didn't see the Black Hawk helicopters that were over the over the stadium, um, but I think that it was a real sense of pride that we. We got there. We got to opening ceremonies. It was brutal. There's a lot of things going on. And yes, from a food perspective, I could talk about how we were trying to make 50,000 cups of hot chocolate that night. But I think that all of that would be just shadowed by the fact that we we got to the opening ceremonies. So many things were happening and many people didn't see anything that was wrong. They only saw what was right. And uh, that, that would be my that would be my goosebump moment. Thank you, Don, very much. Uh, and what was right was amazing. So I'm glad the focus was uh, on what was right and not on uh, problems with 50,000 cups of hot chocolate. <laughs> well, Don, this has been uh, <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking time again to join us from Williamsburg. Now, if people want to reconnect with you, Don, in social media or other ways, what's the best way for them to, for them to do that? Oh, well, I'd, I'd love to hear from it from, from anyone or everyone that, uh, for whatever reason, just to say hello or to catch up. Um, best way obviously is uh, through LinkedIn. You know, we're, we're following the podcast and some of the other items on there. So I am on LinkedIn and uh, also, uh, you know, I have a hyperlink off to my website that also has my contact telephone number there. If they go to the Don at gfssolutions.com. Uh, they can they can track me down pretty easy from there as well. All right. Excellent, Don. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for participating as well. Please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll talk to you again next week. Don, thanks so much. 
Thank you, Christian. Have a great day.